Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. coffee. I wanted to, I just uh, felt impressed by the Lord. Before you sit down, before you sit down, what I'd like for you to do, I just, uh, I, I uh, everybody stand back up. Let's, let's do a little exercise. I just really just sensed, um, I, this, this has been a prayer I've been having all morning, and it, the Lord said, I'm answering your prayer. And I just, I was praying that the veil would be very thin today. You go, what are you talking about, Steve? I'm talking about the veil between this world and the kingdom. That the veil, that we would penetrate through the veil. Now, if that kind of sounds odd or strange to you, that's okay. The Bible's full of odd, strange things, and we are a peculiar people, the Bible says. And so I don't mind that, but I, I do sense um, 20, almost 25 years ago, I had an encounter with the Lord that uh, was kind of inexplicable for somebody like me. I don't think I had ever cried since I was a tiny little boy. I don't ever actually ever remember crying. And 25 years ago, the Lord did something in my 40-year-old self that was the least expected thing, but he touched me in a way that every time I sense the presence of God, I start to leak out of my eyeballs and profusely. And this morning, I was just weeping as we were worshiping the Lord. And so I... You know, sometimes I'm not that sensitive, but I don't even have to try to be sensitive when I know the presence of God is here. So what I want to say is I want people um, that have a need, and it doesn't have to be a big need. Maybe it's the need that you don't sense the presence of God. And you know, just because you don't sense it doesn't mean he's not present. We all know that. We, we walk by faith and not by feelings. But as I like to say, I like the goosebumps. I like the feelings. I like the sense of the presence of the Lord. And so if that may be a need you have and you're not sensing the presence of God, I'm going to ask you to do something because we pray for people here and we, we can all, I, I've, I've actually had to get up here some Sundays and teach the word of God and I couldn't, I don't feel a thing. But you know what? I always want to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. And so maybe you say, I'm not really sensing the Spirit of God in my life. I'm not sensing the presence of God directing me. Maybe uh, you've had some stumbles. Maybe you've just your heart's grown cold. Maybe you need a new dimension of faith. Maybe you're in a perfect place that God wants you. It doesn't matter. But if you'd like some prayer for that, I'd like a... You raise your hand, and some of your friends around you are going to pray for you. Anybody? We got a few people. Oh, more than a few. Good. We 
We got plenty of people here. Okay, so those of you that are around them, look at them. And you, you pray. There's, there's, gather around them. Come on. Don't be shy. We're practicing the priesthood of the believers. I want you to just pray for them. Yeah. Lord, we just pray right now for every person here that their inner man of their spirit would be awakened to the presence of God in their life. That there would be a fresh awareness of your presence in their life in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit on them. And Lord, if there's any kind of opposition spiritually or if they have sown some seed that are unhealthy seed, may they have crop failure. Lord, I pray for every person here that your sweet presence, abiding presence, they would sense it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, Moses... um, he basically said this, I, you know, the Lord said, I'll send an angel to go with you and your children of Israel. And basically Moses said, you can go sit ahead and sit down. Uh, these college kids are ready to go, man. I love it. Uh, he said, look, I, 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 I don't want to go unless your presence goes with me. Th- this is the who we've been called to be. And we have been called to be people of his presence. We're not called to be people of his principles. A lot of us want the rules of God without the person of God. And we're going to say that until every one of us actually practice, Lord, I want your presence. Um, wanted just to give you a... Our whole series lately has been A life of pilgrimage. And um, last week we talked about the commission of that pilgrimage, which is the great commission to the nations. Not only to our next door neighbors, but to our neighbors who are thousands of miles away who've never heard the name of Jesus. And Holly did a fantastic job. Two weeks ago I talked about the city that we're all seeking, the kingdom capital. The capital and I, I wish I'd have read this before, but I, it, it so impacted me, I haven't been able to get it out of my head. For the, I, I read this, I think, the day after the, the message two weeks ago, and I believe Brenda shared it with me, and it was that <laughs> the heart of the Father was wrapped in the person of Jesus on that cross. The heart of the Father was wrapped in the flesh of Jesus on that cross. I have just been undone by that. I, I start leaking. That's why I, I need to... But so that you understand, we're talking about a life of pilgrimage where we don't know exactly where we're going. No, I'm okay. Okay, at least for now. Uh, but, but 
we, we've got a, I want, we're, do, we're doing the developed series of our five D's of a de- devoted disciple. And, and in that, you can see it, we've got a kingdom worldview, we're eternal su- suffering and eternal rewards, spiritual gifts, callings and vocations, servant leadership. Well, we're going to stay stuck in kingdom worldview today. I thought I was going to get to the next step, but I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a book that literally the title of it could be easily translated pilgrimage. But you may know it, if you've been a Christian any time at all, as the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. Now the word Exodus means to leave somewhere. That's, that's really literally what it means, to, to depart a place. And we're going to look at this exodus or this pilgrimage story. And it's the kind of story most of us hear a little bit on Easter Sunday or the week before Easter or two weeks before Easter. It's not one we hear in the fall, but... I want to really pay attention to this incredible story that is a backbone story of the entire Bible. And it is found in Exodus chapter 12. And one of the things that we're going to do today, and I, would you allow me to do kind of a little Bible study with you? A lot of times uh, we don't do line upon line teaching here all the time. But today we're going to do a little bit more intensive Bible study. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd like, you know, if you've got your electronic Bibles or open them up. I'm going to read, we're going to read, first of all, before you look, look up, go, look, we're going to start with chapter um, 12, verse 1. And I've got the contemporary English version, which is the American Bible Society published. And it's got a, I, I like the way it phrases some things. By the way, in talking about Bible study, um, I, I want to encourage all of you to have about three or four Bibles you use of different translations. And when you're studying, not when you're reading, but when you're studying, and there's a difference between reading and studying, when you're studying, look at a, two or three or four good translations. And you do not have to be a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar to be able to study the Bible. Let me tell you, there's some really thoughtful men and women who've already done all that heavy lifting for you. And that's why there's different, you go, wow, that really sounds different, the way they phrase that. And they didn't do that just because they wanted to be different. They did it because every word in Hebrew and Greek can often have subtle differences. And those distinctives help us gain clarity sometimes that we don't have previously. Okay? One of the things that we, we have this constriction sometimes. Well, I need to read this version. There are some that are erroneous, but very few. There is a phenomenal coherence about the Scripture. A, a consistency like a 1,500-year worth of clues left behind that cohere and adhere and stick together almost miraculously 
And this is one of those chapters that is filled with those kind of coherent, big picture, consistent repetition of the truth of the scripture. So let's read it. Sometimes later, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this month is to be the first month of the year for you. It wasn't the first month of the year for them at that time. Their secular uh, calendar was a completely different first month. Tell the people, some translations say the congregation, of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, the head of each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for his family to eat. If any family is too small to eat the whole animal, they must share it with their next door neighbors. Choose either a sheep or a goat, but it must be one year old male that has nothing wrong with it. And it must be large enough for everyone to have some of the meat. Each family, verse 6, must take care of its animal until the evening, or some translation says twilight of the 14th day of the month, when the animals are to be killed. Some of the blood must be put on the two doorposts above the door of each house where the animals are to be eaten. That night the animals are to be roasted and eaten together with bitter herbs and thin bread made without yeast. Don't eat the meat raw or boiled. The entire animal, including its head, legs, insides, must be roasted. Eat what you want that night. And the next morning burn whatever is left. When you eat the meal, be dressed and ready to travel. Have your sandals on. Carry your walking stick in your hand and eat quickly. This is the Passover festival in honor of me, your Lord. All right, I'm going to stop right there, and we're going to back up and look at some really fascinating things. How many of you have heard the term Passover? Okay. Anybody not heard that term? Anybody not familiar with that term? Okay, because I want to make sure... The Passover was the most important celebration, festival of the entire nation of Israel because it was the commemorative day of their beginning as a nation. And in fact, that word congregation or tell the people, the word that's that's used there a lot of times is congregation. This translation is a more modern one. It just says tell the people. But that word congregation is is what's translated uh, in the Septuagint as the ecclesia, which is the same word as the church. Tell God's people. And so this is the first time that this slave nation, there there are people that are in total bondage. It's like they went down there to get protected, and guess what happened to them? They got enslaved. I mean, you talk about a, a raw deal. That's what happened. And, the, and their cruel masters were the Egyptians. And so this is a story about their deliverance from their slavery. And it is such an incredibly important story that there's just nugget after nugget. And we're just going to dig out a few. And we're not going to spend as nearly as much time as I'd like to camp on these. But you tell the children of Israel on the 10th day of the month, the head of each family must choose a young goat for his family to eat. I want you to notice something here. 
There's nothing here about an individual salvation. This is about a salvation of an entire people group. This is, the, this is always the way the Lord starts. He doesn't start with us as individuals, much to the chagrin of us as Americans. Can you say, oh my, or amen? We are, God is interested in a people. He's not just interested in individual salvation. And can I just tell you that I, like probably a lot of you, that's really the way I understood it. It's just me and Jesus, and I get saved, and it's just me and my walk with God, and I kind of have this individualistic spirituality. But that is completely missing biblical theology, biblical understanding of what salvation is all about. He doesn't just save individuals. He saves peoples. And, he, and, the, and the phraseology throughout the scripture is, you who were not once a people are now a people. We have been invited into a congregation, an assembly, a group of people. It is vitally important that we do not have this individualized hyper-spirituality that I and Jesus on the golf course on Sunday morning have a wonderful walk with God. You may be out on the golf course enjoying God's creation, but he's probably not really fellowshipping with you. I can't believe I'm actually saying that. You know why? I was one of those guys. Because I thought my salvation was primarily individualistic. I'm, I'm, this is a confession. This is not, I'm not fussing at anybody. I'm just telling you. The Lord has taken years for me to understand this. He's very patient. But my spirituality is not simply individualistic. And I want us to understand something here. This, the father of the house, or the head of the house, was supposed to take this lamb, this lamb on the 14th day at twilight. Now, now this, you, this, this is so elegant. I just, I just love this. This all happened 1,500 years before the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it. Now, that next day at 9 o'clock in the morning, Jesus got put on a cross. Guess what day that was? That was the 14th day of Nisan, that very same day. And guess when Jesus died? Well, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the word twilight or sunset or what we call dusk didn't start at 6 o'clock or 5.30. It started when the sun began to really recede. Guess what time that was? And that is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
Jesus, according to Paul, is our Passover lamb who was slain for our sins. Now, I'm going to get back to that bread thing, but let's keep talking. Some of the blood, verse 7, must be put on the two doorposts and above the door of each house where the animals are to be eaten. Eat, verse 10, eat what you want that night and the next morning burn what's left, left over. One of the interesting things is, <laughs> some of the translations say it, fill yourself up. You can't take just the parts of Jesus you want. You have to eat the whole lamb. You don't get to choose, pick and choose the Jesus you want. You have to eat all of him. And you have to fill yourself up with him. And you can't save any of him for later on. The other characteristic that we read is this. When you eat the meal, be dressed. And ready to travel. Have your sandals on. Back in those days, even in the, even to this day, in the Middle East, people will lounge at a table. They don't sit in chairs like we do. They'll lounge at a, at a low table with their feet extended out, on their elbows, eating, talking to each other around the table, kind of intently in each other's space around that table. And uh, they don't wear their shoes. They don't carry their staffs. Uh, they are completely relaxed. But in this particular story, they're told to do something. They're told to look like pilgrims before they even start a pilgrimage. Because here's what the Lord said. I am going to set you free this day. This day, I'm going to set you free. And so, you're also to carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat quickly. At some point, every one of us had to make a quick decision whether we're going to follow Jesus or not. And that one decision changed everything for you. Now, let me go back up to here. I, I love this. Some of the blood must be put on the two doorposts and above the door of each house where the animals are to be eaten. The shedding of the blood happened before they ate. The shedding of the blood had to be on the doorposts, which is where representing how they get in and out, where they live their life, both in their home life and in the rest of the world. And the blood was put, and some of you have heard this for years, but some of you may not have heard it. But So let's just, let's see, we got a door right here. Here's a door. They put blood, so you're not confused. That is the lentils, and this is the sides of the door right here. And they took a, a hyssop branch filled with blood, and they smeared the blood there, they smeared the blood here, and they smeared the blood there. And you know, if blood starts dripping down from the head, it kind of creates a puddle right in the middle. And if you kind of create a 
mark, it kind of looks like a cross. You know, the Lord is a poet. It had to be a male. And here's the other thing. It, and, and later on in this story, we find out that this, this lamb could not have any of its bones broken. You know, when you slaughter an animal and you cut it up for meat, a lot of times what happens is the bones get broken. That's what butchers do. But in this particular setting, the Lord said, you don't even take the insides out. You leave the animal completely together because you have to eat all of him. I mean, that's the, sim that's the, the symbolism that the Lord's trying to communicate to us. Now, what really rested my attention as I was praying about this is this Exodus story starts with the people of God before they're ever saved, dressed and ready to leave and start a pilgrimage. They have no idea where they're going. There is always going to be a level of insecurity as you leave the security of this world and you go into the security of the kingdom. And indeed, we're being invited into the kingdom. That's what I talked about a few weeks ago. It's not just about your personal salvation. It's about a big, gigantic plan that God is inviting you into. And that big cosmic plan is the ushering in of his kingdom on this earth before the second coming of Jesus. And so many of us have mishandled, the church has kind of missed it in so many ways because what we keep looking for and we keep postponing and we, we, we shirk our responsibility to be emissaries and ambassadors of this kingdom by saying, well, it's all going to happen and the Lord is going to do it all. And yet somehow he keeps... Look, you know, I, I don't always agree with his employee picks, okay? But he picked you and he picked me, so there you have it. And he picked Peter, and he picked all those guys that had totally missed it. In fact, in Exodus 19, he starts telling the people his intention. And here's, here's his quote. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Revelation says this. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest of his God and Father. You're a, and then in 1 Peter 2.9, it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for whom God, for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has collected you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Lord collects these slaves. That's what he does. On the Passover, he says, get your robes. They, have, they don't even understand what's going on. He is turning them into a nation of priests. This greatest sacrifice to get us out of death, because that was what was going to happen that night. The death angel, the destroyer, was going to visit every house that did not have the mark on the doorframe. Every single house would lose their firstborn male son. And God said, I'm punishing the gods of 
the Egyptians. They'd exalted themselves over and over against the Lord's reproves. And, and eventually the Lord said, well, this will be the biggest plague of all. But let's get back to this whole idea of priesthood. Here you have this, this slave father. He, he ha, he's about as irreligious as they get. He's being told that he has to minister this meal to his children, his wife, and his neighbors that have too small a family if he's got a big one. And he is the priest. Now, this is way before the priesthood that, that God sets up with Aaron. This is before the Ten Commandments. This is before the Levitical, Levi, who was a priest. That's, that's Moses and Aaron's tribe. The Levitical priesthood, if you ever read Leviticus, it's, it's great for those of you that have insomnia. Uh, it, it's, it's, one of those, it's actually a great book, but, you know, I wouldn't encourage baby Christians to read it. Um, it's a lot of blood, a lot of blood, a lot of burnt offerings, uh, a lot of odd little rules, all of which really are symbols of something that's going on in the spiritual and I think the real issue here is, do you guys realize you've been assigned to be not only members of a kingdom, but you are administrators of a kingdom of God, and it's partly to each other as the congregation of God. There's something that is really, really important. And a lot of people kind of, in fact, I think a lot of us may be in this room, and I'm not going to ask you to take a vote or lift your hand, but I think a lot of people go, well, Steve, what's the difference between the kingdom of God and the church? I mean, is the church the kingdom of God? Well, huh, that's a good question. Do you think the church that, uh, did the crusades was the kingdom of God I mean most of us have how about how about the, the church that did the inquisition in Spain I, I, don't, I don't think so well you could argue well that's not the church well how about the church that believes it's okay to inquisition unborn babies In the, you know, we're, we're, it's just okay with us. I mean, I think we have to have an understanding that the kingdom always supersedes the church. Our ultimate allegiance is always to the king and his kingdom, not the local church, which is the case here at Antioch Raleigh. If that sounds a little self-contradictory or self-defeating, it is not. Only when we understand the true differences between God's kingdom and the church can we vigilantly prioritize the supremacy of the kingdom when the church invariably goes off the path. Our society and the church... History has documented well the litany of misdeeds by the church, 
all of them grievous betrayals of the kingdom and its culture that Jesus established. These abuses, travesties, and sins, however, highlight an incredible paradox that Jesus seems comfortable with. Namely, that he practically, patiently, diligently loves the church. He loves her despite her faults, failures, ridiculousness. Even more troubling is that Jesus as the king insists that we all be participants in the church. So take nothing I'm saying as a slam against the church. I'm talking about priority. Hence, if we want to see a local church that looks a lot like the culture of the kingdom of heaven, we must teach and train every disciple a clear understanding of the hierarchy or the priority of the kingdom of God. Our priority has been established by Jesus in Matthew 6.33 when he said, seek first the kingdom of God. Our first loyalty is to the kingdom of God. Our next loyalty is to the community we call the church. When we prioritize our church or our movement, Antioch, or our vision above the church, then we are headed toward a major train wreck in the church. Is anybody feeling uncomfortable here? When the church maintains its sense of service to the king and the kingdom, we become a safe haven for the whole world. To curate that assignment, the church's prime directive is to preach the gospel of the kingdom, not to promote ourselves. I'm going to have an aside here. Do you talk more about Antioch than you do the kingdom of God? If you do, stop it. The church is God's incarnation on the earth. Like our Lord, we must constantly direct those that gather to our speaking and preaching and life toward the Father, not our movement or our unique distinctives. This keeps the focus off ourselves and onto Jesus, thus reducing our risk of falling into the pit of pride and self-consciousness. Maintaining our clarity and perspective on God's reign over our lives, relationships, and church community rescues us from a multitude of relational failures such as leadership abuses, moral confusion, mission abandonment, and doctrinal error. Magnifying the supremacy of the kingdom of God even with its accompanying privileges and its accompanying status mandates that we look, act, and behave like the king. We are a privileged bunch of people. We delight in him. Guess what? He delights in you. Can, can, can I just tell you, the Lord delighted this morning as we worshiped him. I'm hoping he's delighting right now in what we're, what we're, we're agreeing on right here as a people. His delight is a privilege that is unsurpassed in the cosmos. 
We don't own the kingdom of God. We are its subjects and it can and will be taken away from us if we try to control or own it. That is also why it is imperative that we preach the gospel of the kingdom and not the gospel of the church. When we preach the church, it sounds and often is self-serving. When we preach the kingdom of God, we're heralding good news that there is a wonderful new opportunity of government to rule in our chaotic and destructive lives. How did I get this understanding of the kingdom of heaven or God and the church? Two words. Church hurt. Church hurts and offenses are God's disciplinary tool to train us to think and act like the Father who himself is full of grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. God in his infinite wisdom allows us to be placed in circumstances in church that he could easily keep us out of by his sovereignty. Anytime we place, displace God's sovereign rule with ours, we are troubling ourselves. Seriously troubling ourselves. Israel did that and eventually the kingdom of God was taken from her and given to another. I'm quoting Jesus. So how does that look? He who loves his enemies blesses them and prays for them. That's our only act. You know the only thing you can do to church hurt is that. That's the only option you've got. Yeah, but they were really very bad people. They did very bad things. You want to be, you know, how many of you want the ultimate verse in the Bible on identity? Anybody want to know what that verse is? You actually don't. You actually don't. You think you do. Here's, here it is. Let's look at it. Let's look at it. It's in Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Is there anything about that sentence that has anything good happening to you? Is there anything good happening to you here? Now verse, verse 45 gives you the great identity verse. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That's almost a throwaway line with Jesus. But Jesus has given you the way to get your identity. Everybody wants to have an identity in Jesus. Start loving those that hate you, blessing those that curse you, praying for those who persecute you, you start doing that and you will discover your identity in God. Everybody wants to do it without any of the pain. Somehow, I thought when I got hurt by the church, I was justified in being mad at the church. Anybody got their toes getting stepped on? I hope not. I hope none of you have ever been hurt by the church. I hope you never get hurt by the church. I hope you never get hurt by anybody. I doubt that's going to happen. Okay.
Verse 12, back to chapter 12. That same night I will pass through Egypt and kill the firstborn son in every family and the firstborn male of all the animals. I am the Lord and I will punish the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses will show me where you live. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Passover. Then you won't be bothered by the terrible disasters I'll bring on, on Egypt. Verse 14. I don't know if we're there yet. Remember this day and celebrate it each year as a festival in my honor. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. And on the first of these seven days you must remove all yeast from your homes. If you eat anything made with yeast during this festival, you will no longer be a part of Israel. Then it said, meet together, next verse, meet together for worship on the first and seventh days of the festival. Okay. Oh, let's read this. Verse 17, celebrate this festival of thin bread or unleavened bread as a way of remembering the day that I brought your families and tribes out of Egypt. Remember last week I talked about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Jesus said in, in Mark 15, um, excuse me, Mark 8.15. Beware. Watch out. Of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And we got into that just a little bit. And as I was praying about this message, the Lord said, I want you to go back to that. Dangerous leaven is very dangerous. In, we don't have time to look at it. Depending on how you count, somewhere between seven and ten times, the Lord repeats this command. Do not eat any bread with leaven. That's why we get those horrible tasting crackers in the top of our little thing you know those little wafers that's unleavened bread it's not very good so is the lord just trying to what's his point what's his point is this he was going to explain this whole idea of leaven 1500 years later through jesus who said there's he talks about three types of leaven one is the kingdom of god one is the Herod and one is the Pharisees. So I want to read this to you. Herod was brilliant, ambitious, self-promoting, and very attuned to sheer political power. His many palaces made Caesars look humble, even though in reality he was subordinate to Caesar. How many of you knew that? He was into acquiring status through influence and was cunning and supremely cruel. When embarking on a long trip in which he feared he might not survive, he ordered that his favorite wife, among his many wives, would be killed if he died on the trip, So, because he so loathed the idea of her happiness with another. Really nice guy. He killed three of his own, I think, seven sons. Caesar said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than a son. Herod built a temple that so impressed Jesus' disciples Jesus' indifference to the political systems of his day, however, was remarkable. 
His only response to the disciples' effusive gushing was that this temple would be torn down in three days. Jesus was unimpressed with Herod or his construction project. Even building the temple was political for Herod. He was a nominal Jew. He also needed the Jews to mollify any revolts against Rome, which would have undermined his power. Are you beginning to see what this, this whole Herod leaven looks like? And of course, it's been, it had to be a wonder of the world to satiate his vanity and a need for status as one of the great builders of the ancient world, which he was. Almost all historians agree with that. Herod was about control and concentration of power. He achieved that by creating competition. Competition weakened his opponents and ultimately caused factions and divisions. Unity was the last thing the leaven of Herod wants. Political power's greatest assets hinge on the adversarial dynamics of us versus them. Are you beginning to see how this might apply to our current situation? When leaven fills the hearts of God's people, they begin to ostracize their brothers and sisters according to the views of their favorite political pundits and not according to that of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus practically ignored the vast and vociferous politics of his day. He even appraised Herod lower than a person, referring to to him as a fox. Foxes use savvy, stealth, and deceit to capture their prey. If they raid a flock, all they have to do is divide one from the herd. But to say that Jesus was not political is not quite correct either. He wasn't a political animal like Herod, but he was political in that he was ushering the ultimate political system of the cosmos on this rebellious planet called Earth, and he was ushering the politics of the kingdom of heaven. The leaven of Herod uses political litmus test as the primary tool to accept others. My appeal to you is, I don't care what your bent is. If it's not primarily bent toward the kingdom of heaven, you've been infected with the Herod's leaven. I'm I'm warning you as God's people, we have to be careful. Do not have leaven in your house. I could go on, but I'm going to stop. The leaven of the Pharisees. Pharisees started out very loyal to Yahweh. They rejected much of Herod's policies and practices. That's really interesting. Yet something emerged among them, became rigid, malignant, cruel, and eventually murderous. The leaven of the Pharisees distorts ordinary, well-intentioned believers into someone who is very sure of what they believe And their belief is out of acquisition of raw scriptural knowledge, mostly from others, and not from their own encounters with the Lord himself. Let me say that again. They become really sure of everything they know because somebody else taught it to them, and they just get real arrogant about it. 
Instead of saying, Lord, what do you mean by this? And learning from him and letting him teach you. They must be right by the mere fact that they can mimic and grasp the intellectual nuances of doctrines without those same truths transforming their hearts. Let me hasten to say this. Being taught is not a bad thing. But just getting head knowledge is. And there is a vast difference. It's called 18 inches. Thus, they are, people infected with the leaven of Pharisees are incapable of genuinely and, listen, and curiously listening to others. Everyone is a subject to them, not a person. Following hard after these unrecognized attitudes is a self-righteous judgment of almost everyone, even their close friends, which actually might be a generous description. That's because everyone in their sphere remains vigilantly self-protective, avoiding authenticity and vulnerability at all costs. It's dangerous to one's health when a friend is a Pharisee. The leaven of the Pharisees makes ones appear humble until and unless they're crossed, or you show some struggle in your performance around them. The leaven of the Pharisees use religious litmus test as a primary tool for the acceptance of other of others. And finally, the kingdom of God does not have a litmus test for the acceptance of others. We even love our enemies. Citizens of the kingdom simply accept and love everyone even when they disagree with them. That's why tax gatherers, zealots, prostitutes, the irreligious love to hang out with Jesus. In today's world, it would be goths, frat boys, skinheads, homies, boys from the hood, prep schoolers, homeschoolers, pimps, and good old boys all clamoring to hang out with Jesus. For these reasons, in the book of Exodus, the Lord warns us against leaven. We need to take and heed his warning. I'm done. <laughs> Let's all stand up. I didn't actually get where I wanted to. Well, I got where I, I, I started out the week. The Lord dropped something in me, and then yesterday. Look, I wish I was different. I wish I could just have an outline, stick with it, have it done by Wednesday. I've never done that yet. That's just what you have to tolerate. I, I want us to examine ourselves. I, I, as a church, the church has been infected with the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees for way too long. This past year, we've seen innumerable cases people have rejected people reject other Christians because of the Bible translation they use let me just tell you that's a massive overdose of the leaven of the Pharisees right there we do not fellowship around the leaven we fellowship around the body that was roasted and the bread that was broken. 
That's who we fellowship around. We don't fellowship around our understanding of that event. We celebrate in the person of Jesus Christ. That's who we center on. His atoning blood, his atoning death, his resurrection. I want to say to all you young folks, I read a book. The first opening line was John Fisher. He was one of the early pioneers of the Jesus movement and, and worship music. By, by the way, we didn't do this back when I was a kid. We had an organ. That was it. And, but John Fisher said this. In the opening, he said, 15 minutes after you get born again, you become a recovering Pharisee. Can I just tell you, there's nobody more arrogant than a young believer that has a lot of Bible. Can I just caution you? Stay humble. Get excited about what God shows you. And just know, you just see a little bit. You don't see the whole thing. To the rest of us who've been around the Lord in a long time and we've grown cynical and we don't know, maybe we just have been infected with Herod's cynicism. And we just want to use the world system to kind of have our Christianity. I want us to examine ourselves this morning. I want us to look inside our heart, and I want you to ask the Lord Jesus, if there's any leaven in my life, Lord, remove it from me. Okay? Will you do that? I don't want this to be terribly heavy, but... Yeah, well, I want the word of the Lord to dictate what this congregation looks like. That this people is dressed and ready to go. We got our sandals on, and we're ready for the adventure of a lifetime. Lord, right now I just pray that you would hasten our deliverance from the, the leaven that you warned us over and over and over again. You would cut off your, you, you would be cut off if we allow the leaven to infect our hearts. And Lord, your church just falls for this leaven every time instead of the leaven of the kingdom that is subtle and gentle and humble, just like you. thank you that you have given us a peek into your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go ahead. If you're a parent, um, we ask you, just one of you, go get your child or children and feel free to come back. We're going to continue in worship. We'd love for the kids to be here.